What's up, Raider Nation? Matt Holder here from Silver and Black Pride to bring you another edition of the Holder's Handful podcast. It's Friday, so that means we're going to be going over the news stories of the week, recapping some of the injuries, and of course, sprinkling in a little preview of the Monday night season opener against the Ravens. Damn, it feels good to say that, baby. Without further ado, let's get to it. We'll start with probably the biggest news coming out of Raiderland this week, and that was the decision to cut Tanner Muse in order to make KJ Wright officially official. Now, those of you who have listened to this podcast over the last few weeks, you've heard me talk a lot about Tanner Muse. I've talked a lot about how he was, I thought he was showing development and showing some growth and showing some potential for the future, but obviously the coaching staff wasn't going to be willing to wait around for him to develop. And I think that's kind of falls in line with a lot of the moves we've seen Gruden make this year. And I mean, I think I talked about it a couple weeks ago with the Khalil Mack trade. Gruden is hell-bent on making the playoffs this year, and that falls in line with a lot of the uh, off-season transactions that he's made this year. He'll take a veteran rental player over someone that he thinks he's going to have to develop and might have a better future just because they can contribute more this year. And I mean, maybe he's heard some of the rumors that if he didn't have the 10-year contract, his job would be on the line. And I mean, it is going into year four. And let's be honest, Gruden has a longer leash than most other coaches. So he's got a little something to prove this year. And as far as Muse's future, for those of you that don't know, he ended up signing with the the Seattle Seahawks practice squad. And according to the Las Vegas Review-Journal's Benny's Monsignor, the Raiders did offer him a practice squad spot, but Muse obviously opted to go to Seattle instead. And to be honest with you, I don't blame him. I can imagine he was probably pretty pissed about this situation. We found out later that he got cut on his birthday. And I mean, think about it this way. He got cut about six days after the cutdown day. So here he is thinking he made the roster, only to just be surprised and get a terrible birthday present from John Gruden. Now, maybe the Raiders gave him a heads up that this was going to happen. It's not as big of a deal as we seem. But also, if you look at the Seahawks roster, especially without KJ Wright, and you look at their linebacking corps, you know they have Bobby Wagner, obviously, who's one of the better linebackers in the uh, in the NFL. But the rest of their linebackers core isn't very strong, and I think uh, Muse actually has a chance to eventually work his way onto the roster. Whereas if you look at the Raiders linebackers corps, especially with KJ Wright, it's actually a pretty strong group right now, especially top heavy. And I mean, you have two guys on IR and Javen White and uh, Nick Morrow. Nick Morrow was the best player on the defense last year. And honestly, Javen White probably outplayed Muse in the preseason and in the, the practices that we didn't see. He looked pretty good. So I think uh, the Raiders are going to be in for another um, big decision once those two guys come off IR. So it was kind of inevitable or it felt inevitable, at least now in hindsight, that Muse is going to end up getting cut. You know, I, again, I think the Raiders are going to have another tough decision, especially once White comes off IR, and I don't think we're done with the surprises in this position group. The one thing that I am a little concerned about with this move and with this decision is this is another black mark on Mike Mayock's uh, resume. Most people, including myself, kind of give him a pass for a lot of the first-round picks not handing out. You know, I think a lot of people are in agreement that John Gruden's at least, you know, kind of in that full control, especially with those early picks. So I think Mayock kind of gets the excuse whether or not that's fair is kind of up to your opinion. But where Mayock has made his money and where Mayock has kind of gotten his claim to fame is those mid-rounds, right? Getting guys like Hunter Renfro and this year's Nate Hobbs. But it's a tough to come back from when before the draft you say having three third-round picks is like stealing. And those, if we hit on those, if we do it right, excuse me, I'm butchering this quote. If we do it right, those three guys will hopefully be starters. And then two of them, one being Lynn Bowden, the other being Tanner Muse, don't even take a regular season snap for you. And if you look around at some of the best teams in the league, 
a lot of their roster is made up of those mid-round picks. You know, those guys may not be all pros or pro bowlers, but they're at least quality starters. And right now the Raiders are getting literally nothing out of two out of their three third round picks from one draft class ago. Now, maybe Brian Edwards ends up coming a wide receiver one and kind of saves it for him. But for right now, I don't think this strategy of we'll just take a flyer on these guys in the mid rounds. And if they don't work out, we'll just sign a veteran rental. To me, that's just not how you build a stable team, right? You're going to end up having a lot of turnover in the roster. And at the end of the day, having a young core is more valuable than anything to me. But again, we got a long season ahead of us. Hopefully, Brian Edwards can turn into a star, superstar receiver and the Raiders can start winning some ball games. Moving on to Darren Waller. I'm sure everyone who's listening knows about Waller's struggles with addiction, but Fox is releasing a documentary on Waller and how far he's come over the last several years. They released the trailer earlier this week, and I'll be honest, it looks pretty awesome. It's another opportunity to get to know the guy underneath the helmet, and it looks like they interviewed a couple of other players like Max Crosby, who has overcome some of his own struggles with addiction recently, and John Gruden talks about how they found and signed Waller, so it looks like there's a lot of good stuff that I'm sure Raider fans would love. The documentary releases today, Friday, on all of Fox's digital streaming platforms, so make sure you check it out. Another player that you guys have heard me talk a lot about during the preseason is Nate Hobbs. The Las Vegas Review-Journal released a story this week about how the Raiders ended up drafting Hobbs, and I'll give you guys the quick Cliff Notes version, but head on over to the Review-Journal for the full story. As I've talked about before, Hobbs was very much under the radar during the draft process, and was barely even on Mayock's radar early in the process. An area scout or someone lower on the Raiders scouting totem pole was at Illinois' pro day and texted up the chain of command that they needed to take a deeper look at Hobbs. He tested really well and was a physical guy that that scout thought he could make the transition to the inside to nickel. Mayock, Gruden, and company agreed and assessed whether the rest of the league fell in regards to Hobbs, and the rest is history. Again, head to the Review Journal to get more details. And an interesting side note is my boss, Bill Williamson, got to sit down with Senior Bowl director Jim Nagy to talk about Hobbs, and Nagy said the cornerback will serve as a teaching point for his scouts when they're evaluating who should be on the Senior Bowl roster as Hobbs was left off of it this year. As I'm sure you guys already know, the Raiders had two Hall of Fame inductees this year in Tom Flores and Charles Woodson. Yesterday, the team announced that when those two will be presented their Hall of Fame rings, so I figured I'd share that with you guys in case you guys want to start planning to make it out to one of those games. Flores will receive his ring on September 26th against the Miami Dolphins, which is the team's second home game of the season and the week after they play in Pittsburgh. Woodson will get his on November 14th against the Chiefs, so now there's even more reason to go check out that rivalry game. The Raiders also named captains this week, and bear with me for this segment because there's seven of them. Defensive ends Yannick Ngakwe and Max Crosby will be the captains on defense, while tight end Darren Waller, running back Josh Jacobs, guard Richie Incognito, quarterback Derek Carr, and fullback Alec Engel will be rocking the seas on their chest this year. Outside of Carr, that's six brand new captains for the Raiders. And personally, I think it's awesome to see younger guys like Crosby, Jacobs, and Engel step up and become leaders. Those guys are the future of this team, and I think the future is in good hands with them. Alright, we'll wrap up the news segment with something that's not necessarily news, but I wanted to make sure I give everyone a heads up that's going to the game about the Raiders' vaccination policy. If you're not going to the game or you already know, Go ahead and mash that 15-second button and skip ahead to the injury report. Anyways, as I'm sure you guys know, anyone over the age of 12 needs to either be fully vaccinated or received at least one shot to enter the game. If you are fully vaccinated, go to Raiders.com forward slash clear, and the team said it will take about five minutes to upload all the info you need to, and then you'll get like a QR code on your phone, and that will be scanned along with your ticket before entering the building. Now, if you're going to the game, do this before you start heading to the game. 
You don't want to be that person that's holding up the entrance line for a bunch of liquored up Raider fans because you have to prove your vaccination status at the gate. That's just going to cause a problem for everyone and make everything a lot longer than it needs to be. On that note, the Raiders have consulted an outside firm to manage the potentially elongated entrance process to help run things run smoothly. However, I would highly recommend getting to the game as close to when the gates open as possible. This will still be the first game the team is rolling out this new process, so I imagine there will be a few hiccups along the way. And the last thing you want to have happen is you miss the opening kickoff and are late to the game after spending uh, what I'm sure was a lot of money on those tickets. Just hang out, go and swore the new stadium. I'm sure they'll have some cool stuff going on for Monday Night Football too, so just soak in the whole experience. I promise you the slot machines, card tables, nightclubs, or whatever you're into will be there after the game. Hell, there's even a nightclub in the stadiums, and I wouldn't be surprised if they got a blackjack table somewhere in there too. Now, if you have an international vaccination card or a between shots, you have to get cleared before entering the stadium. Allegiant will be open on Saturday from and Sunday from, I believe, 1 to 6 p.m. for those people to go ahead and get cleared ahead of time. It will be available on game day too, but again, don't leave this stuff off to the last minute or you'll be sorry. Moving on to the injury report, and I, in full disclosure to you guys, I am working off Thursday's injury report. Obviously, that's less than ideal with only one day of practice, but with the Monday night football and the delayed practice schedule, kind of the best we can do for right now. Cleveland Farrell was the first player listed on the injury report. He had a back injury, but was a full participant, so it seems like he should be ready to go and be able to play on Monday. Richie Incognito is next, and I'm going to be honest with you guys, I'm a little worried about Richie Incognito. He didn't practice again with that calf injury, and he hasn't practiced since the second joint practice with the Rams, which was, I believe, like three weeks ago now. Obviously, he's 37 years old, and this isn't exactly like a wide receiver we're talking about. This is a 320-plus pound dude who's coming off an Achilles injury and now has a calf injury. That's a lot of mass that those lower extremities have to uh, support. And I mean, obviously, there's a question of if he hasn't practiced in three weeks, how great a football shape he is in. So I don't know. I don't know. I'm not exactly confident about Richie Incognito going up against the likes of Derek Wolf and Calais Campbell on Monday night if he's injured and hasn't been practicing much. I think we'll get quite a bit of John Simpson in the game, even if Richie Incognito is healthy for that reason. Again, we don't know how great a shape Richie's in. And at this point, we don't know if he's going to play. And I mean, it sounds like all signs are pointing to him not playing if he didn't practice on Thursday and hasn't practiced in about three weeks. But we'll see what happens. In more positive news, running back Josh Jacobs returned to practice. He had a toe injury and he was limited on Thursday. But again, I have a feeling he'll play on on Monday night. He's obviously one of the biggest parts of the Raiders offense. And I think they were holding him out just to kind of keep him ready and keep him fresh. So I think we should see Jacobs in a full go either Friday and Saturday in practice and then definitely on Monday at the game. Alex Leatherwood was another guy that was a full participant but listed on the injury report with a shin injury. Again, another guy I fully expect him to play on on Monday. And I mean, obviously, if he's fully practicing, he should be ready to go. Carl Nassib, this one was a little bit uh, shocking to me. I hadn't heard about this one yet. He uh, missed some time or was limited in practice with the pectoral injury. Again, limited this early on in the week. Typically means the guy's going to end up playing very rarely unless the injury ends up getting worse throughout the week. Do those guys miss games, especially in something like the, the opening game of the season? Probably just more precautionary at this point, and obviously Nassib being the fourth defensive end shouldn't impact the team too much, even if he isn't ready to go. The next in line would be uh, Malcolm Kuntz if, if uh, Nassib for some reason can't play. Roderick Teamer, another guy that I wasn't uh, aware of, was injured, but he went down with a shoulder and ankle injury and did not practice on Thursday. Teamer was probably going to be more of a special teams guy anyway, so I'll be honest with you, I don't know how much this really impacts the team. 
But if they do want to dive into the safety depth chart and use the third safety, I would expect Tyree Gillespie to get some more playing time if Teamer isn't ready to go. All right, I want to spend some time going over the Ravens injury report too, because they've had some major news happen in the last few weeks in that department, and obviously that'll impact the Raiders' game plan on Monday night. For those of you that don't know, J.K. Dobbins, their starting running back, went down with a torn ACL in their last preseason game, so obviously he won't be playing. And then I think it was maybe six days after that, or a week after that, shortly thereafter, their third string running back, Justice Hill, blew an Achilles. He's out for the year. And then yesterday, Gus Edwards, their second string running back, the guy that was supposed to take over for Dobbins, he tore his ACL in practice. Now, I'll be honest, when Dobbins went down, I didn't think of it as too big of an injury. Yes, he is an up and coming back, and you know it does a lot of good things for him, can affect the passing game. But I've always thought Gus Edwards was fully capable of taking on the full workload. So I didn't think it was too big of an injury when they lost Dobbins, but now that they've lost three running backs in the span of, what, two weeks? Now I think the Ravens have a little bit of an issue, especially for a team that likes to run the ball as much as they do. They did sign Le'Veon Bell earlier in the week to the practice squad, and then after Edwards went down, they brought in Devontae Freeman. They have two other running backs on the roster. One of them has never had a carry in a regular season game, and the other one is more of a special teams guy. So I'd expect to see some sort of uh, rotation between Le'Veon Bell, Devontae Freeman, and then Tyson Williams, who's the guy who didn't ha- doesn't have an NFL carry to his name, but he is somebody that's been generating a lot of buzz in Ravens camp so far. Not exactly sure what that'll look like. I imagine the Ravens will be throwing the ball a little bit more with a uh, few rushers and, you know, two of their three backs that are going to be active and carrying the rock have just been signed this week, so I'm sure they don't have the playbook down. But hey, as they say in show business, the show must go on. And the Ravens got to make do with what they got. Now, from what's been reported as literally the next play after Edwards went down, starting cornerback for the Ravens, Marcus Peters, also went down with what's feared to be a torn ACL. I guess that's what I should be saying is at this point is even Gus Edwards not been confirmed. Still a feared torn ACL, but that's usually not a good sign. Anyway, going back to Peters, obviously that's a huge loss for the Ravens. Peters is probably a top 10 quarterback in this league, and him and Marlon Humphrey make up one of the best secondaries in the NFL. So obviously, if you take that guy away, that's going to significantly alter Baltimore's game plan. To make matters worse, Jimmy Smith, who's a name you probably recognize, just got back from injury, and I actually read that before the Peters injury, I read that before the Peters injury, they weren't sure if Smith was going to be ready to go for Monday night, and there was a thought that they might kind of hold him out just to let him get rest. Obviously, I think Peter's injury is going to speed up uh, Ole Smith's um, timetable there, and I think he'll probably end up playing just because it's kind of push comes to shove. But again, banged up in the secondary, which obviously we're not going to hope for injuries. I hate to hear injuries when they happen to anybody else, but there's no denying that the Raiders get a little bit of an advantage with the, the Ravens being so banged up. On to my favorite part of the show where I get to give you guys a little preview of the game on Monday night. Now, I wrote a column earlier this week. It's on silverandblackpride.com. Go check it out. Outlining five X factors, but I'm going to give you three here today. To get the other two, you're going to have to go to the site and read the article. I'm just mean like that. The first one that I think is going to be a big X factor is going to be Cleveland Farrell. Obviously, a lot's been made about Cleveland Farrell this offseason, and it's been a rough offseason for him. But I think this game will actually suit his skill set pretty well. Obviously, like I talked about at the top of the show, the Ravens are a run-first team, and that big part of that is because of Lamar Jackson's skill set. Even without the running backs, I don't expect them to tweak their strategy too much. Obviously, I think they will pass the ball a little bit more than we might be expecting. But at the end of the day, they got to make sure that they're adhering to Jackson's skill set. And I think that's going to mean a lot of runs. 
Obviously, Cleveland Farrell's much better as a run defender than he is as a pass rusher, and that's the opposite for Yannick Ngakwe, right? That was the big thing, the big drawback of signing him is he's not that great against the run. So I think that's where Cleveland can actually have an advantage over Ngakwe. The other part is actually as a pass rusher. When you're playing a mobile quarterback like Lech Jackson is, the best thing to do is to get power rushers and kind of collapse the pocket, whereas the guys that like to win around the edge, like Yannick Ngakwe does, that can typically create some rushing lanes that Jackson's going to look to exploit. So I think if Farrell can get a little bit of push and start to collapse the pocket early, he might end up playing a little bit more than Yannick Ngakwe does because he fits this matchup a little bit better and it'll help the Raiders contain Lamar Jackson. Staying on the defensive side of the ball, the other guy that I think that is going to be a really big factor on uh, Monday night is going to be Corey Littleton. Obviously, when the Raiders signed him last year, kind of the thought was that he's going to be the tight end eraser, right? That was obviously a problem that the Raiders had had for years, and he really excelled at that with the Rams, but that didn't quite happen. You know, we're chalking that up right now to Paul Gunther's system, but Monday night's going to be the first big test of that because the Ravens have one hell of a tight end in Mark Andrews who's honestly, especially with all these injuries, is going to be their biggest threat besides Lamar Jackson. Jackson kind of leans on Andrews a lot, and I think if you're the Raiders, you want the Ravens to try and beat you with their wide receivers. If you can take away the tight end, and that's going to be a, a large part of that responsibility is going to be on Littleton and force Lamar Jackson to throw the ball wide, then I think that's a win for the Raiders' defense regardless of what the scoreboard says. All right, I'll wrap things up talking about Trevon Merrick. As you guys can probably tell, I'm pretty concerned about the Ravens' offense versus the Raiders' defense, and a large part of that is because of what I was talking about with Jackson on play action and his ability to scramble, which is going to put a lot of stress on safeties. Safeties are kind of put in this bind where they have to either sit back in coverage and cover their man, in which case Jackson will just use his feet and make people miss in the open field to get first downs, or the safeties will have to come up and honor Jackson's feet, and then he'll dump it right over to a guy like Andrews or someone else to go get a first down that way. So if you're a safety, what you basically have to do is latch on to your man and time it up perfectly and then be fast enough to go catch Lamar Jackson close to the line of scrimmage, be under control to be able to make a tackle because he will make you look silly if you're running down with a full head of steam and don't have your feet chopping and whatnot in a good base underneath you. So that's pretty freaking hard for a safety, especially somebody that's going to be making his NFL debut. I'm hoping that the Raiders put him in a little bit more of a versatile role rather than just having him play the free safety just because I think Merrick is one of the guys on the roster that can match Lamar Jackson's athleticism and hopefully bring him down. I've talked about it. I think I talked about it last week and I talked about it certainly on the podcast with Spencer Schultz. But one of the things that Gus Bradley did to stop Lamar Jackson as a rookie was put a guy like Derwin James in the box. And I think Merrick's not quite at James's level, but I think they share a similar skill set and they're both versatile guys that are pretty sure tacklers. Both of them like to wrap up and whatnot. So I'm hoping that the Raiders will put him in the box a little bit. I like to see the Raiders go with as many athletic defenders in the box as possible. Again, all to combat Lamar Jackson, but we'll see what happens. I'm excited for the game and we finally get some regular season football, baby. On that note, make sure you're following Silver and Black Pride if you're not already. Rate, review, subscribe to the pod, download all the episodes you can, tell your friends about it. And please follow me on Twitter if you're not already as well, at mholder95. Until then, talk to you guys next week.